Tonight, I want to meet you in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's get busy in the Word. I, I, I have a word that I feel like um, has been on my heart for a couple of weeks, actually. Um, I told you a moment ago, and I meant it, that I've sort of had coming here as something I've been sort of aiming up towards for weeks, sort of walking my way up towards getting to this meeting. And so in doing so, I felt like the Lord put something in my heart to deliver to you. And I've been dwelling on it uh, five, six different ways, trying to land on exactly what it looks like for us. Um, I don't know exactly what it looks like for us. I just know that I've heard uh, him stirring this in me. And this is one of those nights where, and I do this a lot with you guys, where I come in and I know that there's a seed and we're going to throw it. And I don't know if it'll bounce. I don't know if it'll go right into fertile soil. I, I like to watch how the Holy Spirit does that. And I, I experiment a little bit when I come over here in those kind of situations. And so to watch what the, what the Lord does with this word tonight, um, for me, is kind of exciting. Um, I do believe God has brought us together. I'm leading into a, to the reading of text, all right? Not just rambling. Um, I do believe God has brought us together. I do believe that God over the years has brought you together, then put us into the midst of this. And our journey has been this meandering journey of trying to follow where God would take us in different parts of the country and in different avenues of ministry. And it feels like we're arriving at a spot where... Um, the Father's bringing us together uh, for more reasons probably than any of us know. Um, so my question has been, why, Lord? Why are you doing what you're doing? And um, I got theories, but something I know for sure is that he loves us and he has a plan for us and that he's brought us together to fulfill his loving plan in us so that so many more people whom I believe can truly be impacted by the good news of the love of God can be impacted in a place that has a root system that runs deeper than we want to, we want to start the latest thing. We want to be something. We want to do something because we think we can do it better or we can do it bigger. And, and because of the way the Holy Spirit has designed what's happening here, I don't think any of those things are entering into the equation. And therefore, there's a root system that, that runs into fellowship and family and faith that's going to be attractive to so many people who are tired of build something mentality, work, get in here and put my nose to the grindstone to do something so that I can build a ministry or church, but just want to be cleaned off washed off, loved, but they'd not, but I truly believe this. Maybe I'm naive, but I truly believe that there are a lot of people who are looking to be loved and be fruit producers. They really do want to see good come out of their lives. They want to make a difference in the world. They want better families. They want a better life. They want to live the life of God on the earth. They don't just want to go to a social club that's well known and hang out for a couple hours and, and, and they're not looking to get away from doing anything. They're just looking to get away from the pressure of having to do in order to be saved or in order to be in favor with God. And, and I'm, I'm, I believe he's brought us together to cultivate that sort of place where people can come and tap into a root that they didn't help grow or help 
lay out, but that is ready like a vine because when a, when a, a vineyard, they keep the same root system for years and they just keep grafting into that root new vines. And our Father is the vine and we're the branches that's been grafted into that. And so people are coming and are going to come to be grafted into what the Holy Spirit is doing. So that to me is why this is all coming together. So let me use a word then that sounds a little too heady for that. But I'll, I'll use it because it's really what I want to title tonight. What, the chosen people of God. What, what, is, what does it mean to be the chosen people of God? I say it's too heady for what I'm talking about because who are we to go, we're the chosen people of God. Okay, so I, I know that I've got your, I know that we share a heart. I'm able to say things to you without you <laughs> shutting down. So I'll say to you, what does it mean to be the chosen people of God? And I say it on the backside of that intro so that you know that I'm not about to say to you, hey folks, you guys are the chosen ones. We are the chosen ones. No, but we are a part of, and I truly believe this, we are part of the chosen people of God, regardless of whether we meet in this room or we meet in a church down the street or you're sitting next to a swimming pool somewhere talking about Jesus. You are the chosen people of God for a reason. And so I want to dig into what it means to be that, because to do that, we've got to knock down some ideas of what we think it means, because we've got some erroneous ideas, I think, about the chosen people of God. But then what does it mean? What, what's to be expected if that is us? Let's find out if it's us first. First Peter chapter 2, and let's start with one verse. Here's how I want to do this tonight. I want to open here. I want to go to work on it, and then we're going to come back and close here, okay? And we'll pick up a little bit along the way. First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice how it opens. You are a chosen generation. Um, some translations say you're a chosen race. Um, that's not a great, I don't, I don't like that landing spot. Um, I know what it means is, is it's trying to identify a people in their bloodline is chosen, but I'm going to show you before we're done tonight that I don't believe that Peter's trying to isolate this to a bloodline people. In fact, Christianity's not a bloodline faith. Jesus says that we are born of the spirit, not of flesh, not of the will of man. And so our salvation has not got anything to do with like the, the natural bloodline of I'm from this town and I'm from this denomination. And so, um, but what does Peter mean when he says you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people? Let's start by what chosen is often thought of. A lot of times we see chosen as the ones who God picks to bless greater and to pour his favor out upon. So if we see someone as the chosen people of God, then they're the ones upon whom God wants to pour his goodness out. Now, I'm not going to work about who's chosen 
what, what, what the church thinks are chosen people and what nation of people the church thinks are chosen people. Let's just deal with the idea of what chosen is not so that we can maybe land on what it is. I do not believe that to be the chosen people of God means that it, it's the people who God pours out greater blessings upon. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. God is not doing special things for one group of people and then doing terrible things over another group of people. Father's not a, a marionette in heaven and he's got the strings of some people and he's moving them into favor and other people he's cursing with darkness and disease and sickness. You serve a good God in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He doesn't vary. He's not good to one group and bad to another group. He's not in a great mood one week and in a terrible mood the other week. This is not the year that God has blessed on the calendar. We come into this garbage every year when the church flips the calendar. Oh, this is somebody will prophetically go, this is the year. And then they'll name the number. And then they'll come up with Hebrew numerology. Why 2023 or 2024 has this special place in God's heart. Uh, even though the calendar didn't exist in that form for most of that time yet somehow God's now bound up because we've stuck a number on it that God's got to bless because those numbers are on the calendar you don't serve a, a schizophrenic God who's freaking out and changing his mind all the time over who he blesses and who he curses so the, the chosen people of God and there are chosen but the chosen has nothing to do with I've chosen these people to bless their socks off and these other people over here are not chosen and so they're not getting blessed. And we're so used to this that we actually say it in our daily, today to day speech. We'll go, why is that person so blessed? Go, well, God's chosen. Why is that person so gifted? Well, God chose them to be so gifted. And, and we say it as a way of thinking we're giving glory to God, that God chose that person to be so good at what they do or so, you know, to be so great at what they have. But I think the her the, it's the heritage of what it means to be chosen that needs to be examined. Let's start there, shall we? Go to Genesis chapter 12. Let's look at chosen as a heritage, okay? And to do so, I want to start with the what we would consider the original chosen. Now remember, God doesn't change his mind. God isn't working one way in Genesis, and then he gets up into the New Testament, and he goes, ah, that Genesis stuff didn't work. Let's try something else. That's not God, okay? So that's, we, we not, sometimes we need to change that lens a little bit, because that's how we read in the Bible oftentimes. But that's not God. Sometimes it's us putting something onto our image of God. But God is not changing his mind. If God decrees a blessing, God stays with his blessing. So watch how God talks about this chosen, this heritage business in Genesis chapter 12. And I'll read into the Abraham story just a little bit. Start at the top of the chapter. We're really heading for verse 3. But look at verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Sounds chosen, doesn't he? Just in case you missed how chosen he is, leave your country, leave your family, go to a land I'll show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. 
And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Underline that line because that right there is what it means to be chosen. What does the chosen end up doing? Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when God chooses Abraham, it's not just to bless Abraham. He can bless anybody. He chooses Abraham to bless Abraham in order to bless all the families of the earth. I'm going to promote and advance and multiply your family so that they go out over the whole earth so that the whole earth can be blessed by my chosen people. Okay, consider the fact that when God brings Israel out of Egypt and brings them into the wilderness and then into the promised land, on that journey, God through Torah begins to lay out the instructions of how Israel are to take care of each other. Now, I want to remind you of something that's very easy to forget in our grace-centric mindset. And I say that with all respect. I think we need a grace-centric mindset. I'm not cutting it down. But we get a little trapped in our grace-centric mindset into thinking that everything that's in Torah is law, therefore bad, therefore we don't need any of it because we're not legalists, we're grace people. And so we hear, we read stuff in the Torah and we go, we don't need any of that. And we're right, we don't need any of that for righteousness. We don't need any of that for favor, but we do need to maybe get behind the spirit of why God was doing it. So here's something that we grace-centric people often forget but need to remember. The Torah and the legal code is loaded with how to treat your neighbor loaded with it. In fact, you could make the argument that the entire legal code wasn't about the individual Jew, the Israelite. It was about their neighbor and then not just their next door neighbor, but it was about their proximity neighbors, the countries they would be butted up against. How are you going to treat these groups of people? Now, leave that aside. I'm not going to get too deep into how they treated the, the nation next to them, but they had all these individual instructions that find their way into Torah. And it's, it's amazing to me that when we go grab stuff out of the Old Testament and put it into Christianity, because we do a lot, we, all, we go grab stuff out of the Old Testament that really meet our, our ideas. I love watching grace people and New Covenant people, New Testament Christians go grab a Leviticus verse every time they want to pin a sinner. You know, they go grab a legal code verse and they'll pin it up against the center. But we don't grab how to take care of the poor and how to take care of the stranger. Like, for instance, you were not allowed to plow to harvest the edges of your field if you owned a piece of property in Israel. If you owned a piece of property, let's say you had a wheat field. Now, I know their wheat's not like North American wheat, but play with me for a moment, okay? You got a wheat field. You were allowed to harvest your wheat field, but you were not allowed to run your harvest to the edge and make a hard right. And then run to the edge and make a hard right. You were not allowed to do that. You were to round the edges of your corner and you were to harvest your wheat field in an oval. That's in the legal code of Israel. And the reason for that is so that people that didn't own wheat fields could come to your wheat field and have your corners. And all they had to do was show up, ask permission, and go out and pick it. Also, when you sent your harvesters out there to turn your rectangle into an oval, if your harvesters were picking wheat and putting it into the bag and they missed, they were legally 
not allowed to reach down on the ground, pick it up, put it in the bag. You missed. It belongs to the earth. If it hits the earth, it belongs to the poor. So you harvested your rectangle in an oval. You harvested one time. You didn't double pass. One time, don't miss the bag. What misses the bag belongs to whoever gleans behind you. And the poor and those who didn't own their own fields were allowed to glean behind you in the, your workers, the guys you were paying. The other people who weren't getting paid at all, who didn't own their own field, were allowed to come in and pick up whatever missed the bag. And they were allowed to harvest all four corners of the field. And thirdly, if you own two wheat fields, you were not allowed to own two wheat fields next to each other. You were supposed to own a wheat field and then give common ground and then own another wheat field. Because the common ground belonged to the guy that don't have a wheat field. And this is God's legal code. This always amazes me that when we go cherry picking Old Testament scriptures to pin sinners to the wall, we leave the economics alone. <laughs> like we don't, we don't pick up the Old Testament economy verses and go, boy, this is how we ought to run things. This, this is how we ought to do stuff in our economy. No, we love the sex verses. I mean, let's just get blunt. We like the sex verse. We want to use those verses on people, but we don't want to use the don't get to reach down twice, pick it up off the ground, uh, you know, harvest the corners of your rectangle field. And so the, the reality is, is much of what we see happening in the Torah legal codes is God blessing his chosen people to bless everybody else. And he's so concerned about it that he tells Israel, when you encounter a stranger, when you, you are to bring them in and feed them, to clothe them and to house them. And the stranger is held in such high regard, God tells them in Leviticus, that if your brother finds himself, your Israelite brother finds himself in need, you are to treat him like a stranger. We hear that and think, treat him like a stranger. That's how well they treated strangers. So when you saw your brother in need, you were to treat him as if he were a stranger and pour everything you had onto him because that's how you treated strangers. Now, why did I bring all this up? Well, because God blessed a people on the earth and called them his chosen people. And for what purpose? So they could get a bunch of blessings? So they could be fat cats, so they could be the favored ones of God, so they could get all the anointing, so all the talents and gifts and privileges could come their way. No, but so that whenever that did come their way, they would realize they were conduits to turn all of that outward to everywhere else they could be a blessing. So that when God chose Abraham and multiplied Abraham by pouring out favor on him, he poured out favor on it so that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. To be seen as the chosen one meant that you held a great power in your hands. You held a great power and therefore, as we learn from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Where does Spider-Man learn that? Well, he learns that from his uncle. Where does his uncle learn that? I think he learns that from Jesus. 
<laughs> I don't know that for sure, but I like to think he had been reading the Gospels right before Peter Parker come in. And he went, hey, let me just filter this down into your lingo, Peter, and tell you that with great... How do I know Jesus said it? Because Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. What's that mean? If you've got a lot, then you're expected to give back. Or, with great power, <laughs> comes great responsibility. Or, if you're chosen... Figure out what you're chosen for. And don't think that being chosen means God's going to bless me more than he's going to bless him. No, being chosen means God has chosen to pour into you so that you can pour into someone else. Whatever God is building in this room, he's been building for a while. You are part of the chosen people of God. For what reason? We could just keep coming in here forever and talking about Jesus, I'd have the time of my life. I love to come into a room and talk about Jesus. But I think we, we know that God has chosen this time and this group not just to be a depository of things he wants to pour into you. He's already doing that. He's already put your roots into the ground. He's already got your plants growing skyward. But so that by being part of his chosen people, you can be a people who take what he has given you and give it back. So you fling wide the doors for those whom you don't yet know, but you will, who are going to need the Jesus that you've so fallen in love with, who are going to need the presence of God that we have so enjoyed. And that's part of what it means to be a chosen people. What, what has long frustrated me, and I'm a lifetime churchy, <laughs> I mean, I've been in a church my whole life, born into it what has long frustrated me with what's happened to us is that church has far too often become about building something to validate those who had the vision to build it to validate those of us who are building it to validate pastoral ministry to validate the fact that we put this thing together to validate the money we poured into it so everything becomes about validating someone else's goal, someone else's dream, someone else's vision. And I don't, with all respect, no, no, no stones to throw anywhere, but I don't believe that the ultimate destination for the favor of God is to rest upon us so that we can validate ministry, vision, or buildings but rather to be a people chosen to be a conduit of his love and his goodness and his grace to a people that so badly need it. So that you can be more than just a gathering place, which you'll be, but you can be a place in which the chosen people of God then do something with it. Now, I want to I show you how this evolved, okay? So we're going to actually come to the New Testament, then we're going to go back to the Old. I'm going to take you on a little journey, a little ping pong, okay? When New Testament, Old Testament, we're going to go New Testament, we're going to go Old Testament, then we're going to go New Testament, and then guess what? You guessed it. We're going to go Old Testament. It's literally going to, be, it's going to be Bible study ping pong tonight, a little back and forth, all right? So having already bounced from Peter to Genesis, I want to bounce with you to Luke, all right? Go to the cross. Now, the reason I do this is not just to, I, don't, I know it seems like it, because I, sometimes I throw a lot of verses in. I was like, he just wants one more verse. It's really not why I do it. <laughs> I just, we only have so much time, and sometimes I do like to compact a lot of thinking into a few verses. And I expect then that you can sort of stir that over in your own time, okay? But I want you to think about this before we read. Um, we're going to go to the cross in Luke 23, 
okay? There was such a mentality that to be chosen meant that you had power. It meant that you had authority. It meant that you could do something. That mentality was so well established in Torah that by the time we get to Calvary in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And although they're mocking, I want you to notice what's behind the mock. In Luke 23, 35, the people stood looking on. They're looking at Jesus on the cross. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Now their statement is, they're laughing at him. Look at him dying there. He could save people, right? I think they're being sarcastic. They didn't think he could save anyone. Oh, he could save people, right? Well, if he could save people, and he's who you people say he is. Oh, who, who do you people say that he is? The Christ? The chosen one of God? Well, if he was the chosen one, they don't say if he were the chosen one, God would, should save him. That's what I expect them to say when I read this. I expect them to say, if he's the chosen one, God will save him because he's chosen. And since he's chosen, God's not going to let his chosen one die. They don't say that. They say, if he's chosen, he can save himself. Why? Because the mentality in Israel was, if you're the chosen, you have the power. And what do you do with it? You set people free. You feed them. You clothe them. You house them. To be chosen wasn't the one chosen to survive. It was to be the one who had the power to release. So when they look at Jesus on the cross, they say, well, if he were really the chosen one, he'd bring himself down from the cross because if he's the chosen one, he has the power to come down from the cross. And guess what? They're right. They're not wrong. They're sarcastic. They're hateful. They're not believers. They're unbelieving, but they're not wrong. If he's the Christ, he has the power to come down from the cross. If he's the chosen one, he has the power to come down and save himself because that's what chosen ones have. They have the power to save. Now, I don't need to run down this trail too far, but I'll go. I'll take a couple steps down it. And that is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't come down from the cross because being the chosen one, he knows that the way that the chosen one is going to save the world is by staying on the cross, not by coming off the cross. They're not wrong. He is the chosen one. They're just wrong about how you save people if you're the chosen one. Sometimes you don't save. Sometimes the deliverance that you can provide as the chosen people of God does not look like conventional wisdom says that it should look. It looks an entirely different way. The mistake made, I'm, I'm, I'm on a sidebar here for a second. Run with it, okay? The mistake that is made at Calvary is the idea that if Jesus were chosen, he'd come down off the cross and do some good. And that's because we have the same mentality today that if we're the chosen people of God, then there's good that God wants to do with our lives. And this is where we come up with things like God wants to use you. Anybody ever heard that phrase? God wants to use you. All right. Can I be the debunker of terrible theology for a second? God does not want to use you. First of all, you don't use people you love. You love them. You don't use people that you love. You love them. 
You let them be what they're born to be. You don't use them. You don't ride them. You don't saddle them. You don't put a bit in their mouth and reins upon them and steer them. You love them. You embrace them. You are not used of God because that mentality would have pulled Jesus off the cross and say, I could do better with a life than I can with a death. The reality is, is that God can do more with Jesus' death than he can do with your life. Christianity is coming into the reality that God can do more with Jesus' death in me than he can do with my life. And I step into the death of Jesus so that the new reality, the resurrected me, can do more inside of the death of Christ than the unregenerated life that I brought in can do. This is why we're wrong when we say, boy, I just wish that we could get that guy in the church because he's just got so much talent we could use. It could be used for the Lord. I've heard churches do this forever when they're trying to grow and trying to build stuff. They, they go out recruiting. So they go out recruiting talent. And they go, we got to get us somebody. Boy, that guy right there, if we could just get him saved. Boy, that guy right there, if we got him saved, put him in here, boy, he could do so good because our mentality is that if God, that God's chosen people can do more with their lives than can be done with the death of Christ. No. No. What I am, I bring to Christ and I step into his death. It doesn't mean I lose my personality, my personhood. But it means more can be done from the place of his death than could ever be done from the place of my life and talents. And out of that good, otherwise we're going to have people who we bring in to be used of God. And God's not in the use you up business. He's in the bring you into the death of his son and bring you out in the resurrection of his son. And then live his life through resurrected people. Now, Chosen people of God walking in the resurrection. What are they doing then? They are a conduit by which the death of Christ at Calvary can go to work on the people around. So in reality, by looking at Jesus at Calvary going, if he's chosen, he'd come down here. They got it backwards and we've still got it backwards. They are saying if he's chosen, he should get down here and use his life for God. But the reality is, is that if he's chosen, he gives his life so that God can do with, it, with that life as he will. And that's what all of us have done when we come to Jesus. Otherwise, we're in recruiting missions. We're going to use up people's talents and gifts. And the truth is, is we just bring them in, let Christ go to work. You've not seen anything as beautiful as a resurrected garden. Otherwise, you just got recycled people's talents. Just come in, recycle it, package it, put a little Jesus on it. Here, wear this Christian t-shirt. Get up here and do something for God. It's not a life, it's not what life I can offer, it's what death he has offered. And I step into that death. And that's, that's part of being the chosen people of God. Jesus gets it. That's an understatement. Of course Jesus gets it. That's why he doesn't come down off the cross. I am chosen. This is what, by staying on the cross, this is what he's saying. I am the chosen one. And the only way... For me to do what chosen ones do. What do chosen ones do? Chosen ones bless the world. The only way for me to do that is through my death. Through my death, I'll become a blessing to the world. I'll become a conduit by which the world can move. So, that leads me to this question. Let's ping pong back to the Old Testament. Why do they say this? You go, well, they got Genesis 12. Yeah, 
But Genesis 12 meant that Israel thought they were chosen. Right? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your kids. All the earth's going to get blessed. And Israel went, that's us. That's our daddy. That's Abraham. So Genesis 12 to me doesn't explain why the rulers look at Jesus on the cross and go, oh, if he's the chosen one. Because Jesus never says it. Go scour Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus does not stand in front of a crowd and go, hey, listen up. Chosen one talking. (laughs) Although, would you blame him? I mean, I'd be okay with that intro if Jesus, you know, kicks off the Sermon on the Mount with, zip it, chosen one talking. Doesn't do it. Doesn't identify himself that way. So how do they come up with this idea? All right, go back. Isaiah. 42.1. 42.1. I'm going to give you a hint, okay? Put a ribbon in Isaiah and keep it there because even though we're going to bounce to the new, we're going to come back to Isaiah. Isaiah's, Isaiah's a good spot to land. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, or closer to the Hebrew, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Okay, before I get to that obvious last sentence, because I hammered that pretty hard for you. Notice that the servant who comes along will also be called the chosen one, the one in whom the Spirit of God has been placed. And so if someone came along claiming to be a servant of God in whom was the Holy Spirit, most Israel, most of Israel would look at one another and go, is he the chosen one? Is that guy the chosen one? Do you think he's the chosen one? What about him? They asked of the John the Baptist. Are you the one or do we look for another? Remember when they said that to John? Why did they say that? Because they got Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 told them if you get someone called from God and they got the Holy Spirit on them, they're the chosen one. And so every time they saw someone with the Spirit of God on them, <laughs> they went, oh, maybe... Chosen one? And John goes, no, I'm not, it's not me. There's one coming after me. He's preferred before me. Shoe latches, I'm not worthy to unloose. He'll baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so the rumor then swirls around Jesus. Chosen one, chosen one, chosen one, chosen one. So that when he's hanging on the cross, if you're the chosen one, come down. Okay. Notice what they knew the chosen one was going to do. Look at the end of verse 1 again. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, please put on pause your Western world modern definition of justice for a second. Because if you don't, you're going to put something on Jesus here that doesn't belong on him. Because when we think justice, we think payback. Welcome to America. Welcome to the 21st century. That's how we think of justice. Payback. People that did wrong... God's going to get them. We love to say, God's going to bring justice to the earth. And that's code for, God's going to kill some people that deserve to die. That's code. God's going to bring justice to the earth. God's going to kill some people that deserve to die. This is what's caused people to say, I want the Jesus of Revelation. Because they're misreading the Jesus of Revelation. They think that Jesus is going to come back and slit throats. He's not, but they've read that into it. And so they go, I want the justice of God. So if you think in modern terms, then the chosen one brings justice to the Gentiles, which means the chosen one is going to crush people. Please, stop thinking like a legalist. 
because that's legalistic thinking. Justice is not God raining fire down on people who are wrong. Justice is God raising up people who've been stepped on. That's God's definition. Justice is God reaching down to the bottom and pulling them up. Bringing what they are up to him and bringing himself down to them. Remember Jacob in the wilderness? He saw the heavens open and angels going up and down a ladder and God was standing on top of it. Remember that? And then Jesus says to to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, from here on you shall see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending upon me. In Jesus... God has come down the ladder to where we are to grab us, to bring us up the ladder to his Father. Heaven's justice doesn't smash down on what is wrong. It reaches down underneath and picks up what cannot elevate itself. The chosen one is chosen to help people that can't help themselves. The chosen one is chosen to stay on that cross so that through his death, you can enter his death. The chosen one reaches down and grabs the the dregs of society and pulls it up. Why is Jesus always with the losers? Have you ever, when you read the, if you're honest, when you read the gospels, why does he always hang out with the losers? The low end, the sinners, the tax collectors, the harlots, the prostitutes, the Samaritans, the zealots. I mean, he's got them running around with him in his disciple corps. Why don't he get a few doctors and lawyers and a couple politicians on board? Get some power in that group, Jesus. You got a bunch of fishermen and losers running around with you. None of them know how to read. They're all out here uneducated. They can only speak their native tongue. They can't even read the original Hebrew or the Greek that you you got the Bible written in. You got these dudes out here. They're going to change the world. How's this possible? I love this about Jesus. Every time I read it, I'm fascinated at who he keeps hanging out with. Now, of course, from a theological standpoint, you're going to go hang out with the people that need you the most, right? I mean, the, the, the well don't need a doctor. The sick have need of a physician. So everywhere Jesus goes, he finds sick people that need him. But he's living in a world. We just, we don't see it this way today because we're blessed and we're affluent. Recent anthropological deduction of the first century in Rome has concluded that 10% of the Roman population was the aristocracy and the supporters of the aristocracy. And almost 90% of the Roman Empire was peasants and day laborers. Almost 90. Not quite. Because the very bottom, mud, the little soil at the bottom of the pool, was absolute, destitute, vagabond, nothings. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, Jesus jumped straight into the dirty end of the pool on the earth. You know what the bottom end of that is called? Those are the, what were, what were considered the good-for-nothings. That's the, there's your, there's your scholarly technical term. The good-for-nothings. The low end of the total. That's, that's Jesus when he puts a kid on his knee. And he goes, 
Don't get mad at the little kids for coming to me. If such is the kingdom of heaven, unless you become like one of these, you don't get in. Well, guess what was on the little mud at the bottom of the pool? <laughs> Life's little losers, kids included. Because kids did nothing for the economy but drain it. That's a first century mentality. So Jesus goes, unless you become like one of life's little losers, you're not going to get it. I'm here for life's little losers. I'm here to reach down into the lowest end of the silt and the mud and to pick it up and see if we can elevate this thing. And that's why Christ is chosen. When you do this kind of thing, you got to stop. You got to take a pause. You got to go, are you sure you want to be chosen? <laughs> and I'm, and I, I'm only half kidding. Because I'm actually being kidding, but also serious. Because I believe you're chosen. But maybe not for why you might have thought 40 minutes ago when we got started. I believe you're chosen to be a place that has fertile soil. That people who've been wounded and hurt and harmed can reach down into the root and grow uninhibited. Without condemnation, without fear. And they can be who they really are. And then we can allow the Holy Spirit to do what he really wants to do because their life isn't worth giving, but his death is worth living. <laughs> right? They, they don't, we're, here we are trying to transform lives, but their life isn't anything to offer God anyway. Neither is yours. Neither is mine. But his death is something worth building on. His death is something worth rooting into so that his death can become my death, so that his life can become my life, so that by being chosen, I'm being chosen to do something. So what does the chosen one do? He brings justice to the Gentiles. This is beyond offensive, because this isn't just bringing justice to the low end of the Jewish totem pole. This is bringing justice to the low end of the Roman totem pole. I'm not sure we know how, if we've ever really captured how unutterably offensive it was. Let me just slow down right here for a minute and lay this out because I don't want you to miss this. I don't know if we've ever captured how unutterably offensive it was that one day Jesus is walking down the road and a Roman centurion walks up to him and says, I heard you can heal. I got a servant at home that's sick. And Jesus says, let's go to your house. And before they've even moved, Everybody in Jesus' entourage has to gasp. <gasps> I mean, it's one thing we're going to hang out with Jewish prostitutes and Jewish tax collectors. We're going to go to a Roman's house and the Roman can feel their resistance and says, don't bother. I'm a man that if I say to my soldiers, go, he, he asks how far. If I say jump, he says how high. I have a feeling you're the same kind of man. Speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus gasps and turns to his, to his assembled chosen ones and goes, I've never seen this kind of faith. And we think we, we got this generic f f sound of him going, I've never seen this great of faith in all of Israel. But I think he goes, I've never seen this great of faith in all of Israel. I really do, because that's the crowd. That's, that's his crowd. He goes, I, I, I've never seen this. And he doesn't know anything. This guy don't know Torah. 
He don't care about the Ten Commandments. He's probably got a couple golden statues in his house that he'll sacrifice to. And he believes in me. And he turns to the centurion and says, Go, your servant is healed. I don't know if we've still, 2,000 years later, caught how unutterably offensive that this miracle was in Jesus' day. Because the chosen one fulfilled his Isaiah 42.1 prophetic mandate. He reached down into the lowest dregs of Gentile world and he pulled up a centurion, the most unworthy he could find. And didn't just pull him up, pulled him up past him. I haven't seen this great of faith. So you want to know where I'm going to put this dude? He pulls him up past the crowd. Be careful when you ask for God's justice. Because God's justice isn't to go find someone you think deserves to get smacked and smack them. God's justice is to go find someone you don't think deserves to be blessed and bless them. And go, bring them up. My dream for a place called the garden is that justice flows like a river from the heavens. That people that come in can find a place they can finally, they can finally be free. They don't have to live up to. They don't have to become. They just get loved. They don't get inventoried in six weeks to make sure that their I's are dotted and their T's are crossed so that they get to maintain fellowship with the rest of the chosen ones. No, but that our job is to keep picking them up. Just keep picking them up. Why? Because we believed we were chosen. We're not chosen to be blessed so that we can go. <laughs> we're chosen to be blessed so that we can go. Come on, I can help you. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Here's where we started. I told you we would end here, but of course that was a lie because I'm not going to end here. I'm just going to ping pong you back one more time to the Old Testament. I'm just going to let you know now, okay? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're his own special people. Praise God. Look at all that good stuff. Now what do we do with it? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were not a people, but you're now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I'm begging you as if sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, have your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Look what the chosen people are asked to do. Go live in front of the world in a way that makes the one that chose you look good. Be an offering to the ones who are looking for that offering. Isaiah 5. I wasn't going to give you this. And then I thought, well, why not? We were just going to end right there neat and tidy in 2 Peter. Or in 1 Peter, sorry. 1 Peter 1. But no, we're going to end in Isaiah 5. If you guys remember, I preached Isaiah 5 to you last month. Remember the vineyard of the Lord? Just aired it on, a, on our Sunday release. We're going to go right back into the same chapter. Because I think this is us. And I want you to see that God doesn't just build 
raggedy old gardens. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted with the choice vine. Look at that. The chosen vine gets put in the garden of God. Now, why is anything chosen? So that it can be a blessing. What's the chosen vine supposed to do? Produce the best grapes, the best vintage that can be produced. So you want to be the chosen people of God? Get ready to get squeezed. <laughs> You're ready to get squeezed so that what comes out of you is the sweet tasting aroma of the justice of God. So he can lift up that which has fallen. Planted the choice vine, built a tower in its midst, made a wine press in it. Prophecy goes south here, and Jesus will restore this. It says he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And this was a picture of Israel's rebellion. They were supposed to be choice, but they rebelled. Which tells me that we can rebel against being the choice vine. We're supposed to bring forth the best grapes. We can bring forth wild, rebellious grapes. The choice is ours. And I think it comes with a recognition of realizing what it means to be the chosen of God. Okay, I've went a long time on this tonight. Worked this over six different ways, probably. I think we ping-ponged you back three times. New Testament to Old Testament. That's probably what Bible study's about. These are more than Bible studies. <laughs> These are Bible study sermons. And, so, and Bible study sermons, uh, hopefully, that live on. But let's, let's plant this with just prayer. Just, just bow your head for a moment. Right where you are. Don't, don't, don't have to make an issue. You don't even have to put everything away yet. Just, just take a pause right here. And ask yourself a question. This is not, it's not got to be answered tonight, okay? And this is in no way a condemning stone. This is a question. It, it sounds the way you want it to sound when you pray it, not when I pray it. So the question is, do you believe you're chosen for something? And if so, are you willing to bring forth the good grape? And it's a big question. You go, well, that's not much of a question. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Because if you were listening, it is. I don't know the answer for you, okay? Father, I thank you that you've been working on Paul White about what it means to be chosen. Now, I have felt like I was some kind of chosen thing a few times in my life in ministry. Like I was some dude you couldn't live without. Like when you got me into ministry, boy, you got a good one. And that, that's been just about beat out of me over the years. And it's definitely been squeezed out of me the last several. And what's left is someone who realizes that, yes, he is chosen, but not for all the reasons he used to think he was. But rather to be a blessing. And whatever you need to do to this vine to clean it off, to bring forth the kind of grapes that's going to bring forth a vintage of wine that touches another generation, then, Father, I welcome it, and I invite it, and I ask you to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.